0: Welcome to DemonCast episode 3, the one where I couldn't think of a witty title.
1: You only made it two episodes two episodes two witty quips and that was it
0: but then again i am chris
1: well and i am sarah sorry i've got my important part there while mocking you so my bad
0: (laughs) and this is demon cast the podcast where
1: we will be discussing chapters eight and nine of northern lights
0: yeah the end of section one of the book
1: which is called oxford i think
0: yeah which strikes me as a bit odd because let's be honest Oxford features in about I don't know 10 or 15 pages or something it's a small portion isn't it of the first part
1: maybe Phil just couldn't think of a good title for that first part
0: I think that might be true poor Phil but this is the part of the book essentially where Lyra makes plans to leave Britain
1: Mm -hmm. England
0: whatever it's called in her world
1: Britain with a Y. That was... Yes. So where did we leave off last time in Chapter 7? Well,
0: the Egyptian leader, John Farr, had called a big meeting and given everyone three days to raise an army. Still love that. Still love someone that can raise an army in three days. Impressive. Yeah. And then he and Farr Decorum, another sort of senior Egyptian, have mm. spoken to Lyra about the Alethia meter, basically, how to read it, what Lyra's part in things might be, what her actual parentage is, like... That's good. We can already we've already
1: started to forget what happened in the le- last episode. I know a Whereas week this later.
0: Is, this is the first time we've ever done an episode recap. We normally just get straight in there, don't we? It's don't just know, a new far. format.
1: <laughs> I just felt like it was like to remind myself a little bit before yeah. I, before I well, jump to, in. to
0: be fair, the chapters that we did last week and then this week, eight and nine, they follow on from each other pretty directly. So I think mm. it's worth doing. Yeah. So chapter eight starts, chapter eight, frustration starts with Lyra basically struggling a little bit with the knowledge that Azriel and Coulter, in particular Coulter, are her mum and dad.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, she seems to accept Azriel being her father, but not Mrs Coulter being her mother. But as we have said before, or as I have said before, Lord Azriel isn't exactly nice to her, and he's kind of downright abusive to her at times. But I yeah. guess, I mean, she's, he's not a gobbler, so I suppose as far as she's concerned, that's the most important piece of knowledge
0: I mean, I suppose the thing is he's been in her life as well, even though Mm. she thought he was her uncle. Yeah. He has been there, sure. He's not a particularly good role model and (laughs) hasn't always treated her very nicely. But like you say, he's not a gobbler. He's not like the big bad bogeyman.
1: I think she's got that thing of being young as well and kind of idolising him a little bit. So she kind of forgives some of his more dodgy behaviours. Yeah, um, I, th-
0: I think she was beginning to idol worship quarter, but her dodgy behaviours became Gone to the next level. <laughs> became insurmountable. <laughs> yeah. But, um, like, again, this is another one of those bits that gets glossed over a little bit in the writing. Uh, for about a paragraph or two, she struggles with this knowledge, and then it's sort of written off as, well, you know, it's Lyra.
1: What it actually says she, is, but being Lyra, she didn't fret about it for long.
0: Yeah, being Lyra, who's apparently as cold and callous as really
1: Emotionally Colter. robust. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's kind of lazy writing in the sense of like, let's not get too into it? Or is it just Lyra is a child and therefore she doesn't kind of emotionally interrogate things in the same way that you would if you were maybe an older teenager, an adult?
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose the thing is you don't, but you'd think that it would have more of an impact on her in a sense. Then again, A for the pacing of the book, and B, for the fact that, like, she doesn't really know Mrs. Coulter. So, okay, mm. she turns out to be evil. She's been with her all of what, six weeks? It would be upsetting, but maybe it wouldn't be that upsetting for her. I don't know. But it's, I guess, probably overall, it might be a pacing thing. Yeah. Like, if that was less important to the story, maybe gets deprioritized.
1: Mm. I guess that's it with a young adult novel. Part of that is that you don't go as deeply into things, mm. you don't interrogate it as much.
0: But it, I have to admit that it, so, so, something I was actually going to talk about near the end of the episode, mm. but I think it's probably a good point to mention it is it does surprise me a bit that he glosses over the emotional impact of that because it's a little bit like what happened to him as a kid. Um, Pullman, that is. So his dad was in the Air Force
1: mm-hmm.
0: and he moved to Rhodesia, which is in Africa. And when he was about seven, his dad died on a mission somewhere in Africa. And for most of his childhood, he held this belief that he was his dad was some sort of hero. Um, he actually received an award for gallantry uh, posthumously and stuff. So Philip Pullman basically thought his dad was a hero and then much later on found out that his dad had crashed his plane whilst flying a bombing mission against the Mau Mau during the Mau Mau uprising. Essentially, what that means is his dad was bombing people who didn't really have any means to fight back against air raids or anything. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, he wasn't the hero he thought he was. Yeah, And I wonder, given that there's a kind of a parallel there with the whole sort of discovering that your parents aren't as great as you thought, why maybe he didn't go into it in more depth?
1: Mm, That's a possible reason for sure.
0: Well, I mean, why? I don't know if it is a... I would have thought it'd be a reason to go into it more. Maybe he found it too personal.
1: But then I think in general, like... I mean, we are kind of sticking on this one small point a little bit, but it does come up a few times that Lyra isn't the most emotional person. And you do get people like that. I mean, I find it a very foreign idea because, like, I emote over everything. Mm -hmm. Um, But you do get people who just don't dwell on things. Life kind of just brushes past. Yeah, and it just rolls on and off them.
0: That is true, I suppose. And I do
1: think for some children that is the case. And people don't develop that. I not say emotional maturity or just kind of the need to question things like emotional things until they get a bit older, maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe don't introspect as yeah. strongly.
1: Basically, we don't know no. is what the uh, general...
0: It all got a bit heavy over that one little point there for a second. That's just the beginning of the episode.
1: But then, like, if we don't do that, what is the point of analysing the book? That's what um, Lit Crit is. It's just taking little things and, like, deconstructing it.
0: Are we doing Lit Crit? That's lit, crit.
1: I mean, I I guess so, yeah. I
0: suppose we are, aren't we? Yeah. Never really thought of myself as a
1: as a literary critic.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was. I I almost <laughs> said or a literary clip. analyst, maybe. <laughs> I, I very nearly said licker and I could feel <laughs> the words coming out. I never saw myself as a licker because <laughs> they don't usually keep mirrors down there. <laughs> but Oh I had to lighten the mood, I'm sorry. I am sorry.
1: Half of the people listening, so like one person has like turned off in disgust now. Maybe this will hit You're the editing dudes. room floor. Who knows?
0: Or it won't, and you've just heard that. But she kind of goes around with the Egyptians anyway after these shocking revelations and essentially just invents loads of fantastical stories about Azrael.
1: Kinda of does what she always does really, mm. which is become a leader. She's a very much a natural leader. She's like draws all these Egyptian children to her and then tells them all these tall tales.
0: Is that what she does? Is she essentially retreating into fantasy whenever something oh, yeah. difficult happens?
1: I mean, there's definitely an element of that um, because they're always based in some kind of truth. There's always like a little grain in there of something yeah, true.
0: Because she tells them that a Turkish or a Turk diplomat attempted to poison mm-hmm. Azrael. I, I really like the story she invents about he's... He's got this poison hidden underneath the stone of his ring and he slips it in the glass, but the poison comes from a snake and she has this whole elaborate thing of how Mm. they milk the snake for its venom by tricking it into biting a honey-coated sponge.
1: That's so so much detail for this story.
0: I know. And in real life, it, it probably wouldn't work. You probably couldn't poison someone with snake venom like that because venom is designed to be introduced intravenously designed evolved to be introduced intravenously well, not you just ingested ruining everyone's dreams there, I
1: right?
0: Yeah. and I, I had to throw that in there because i actually uh, heard that from peternicus who is a academic at the university of natural history berlin well oh. yeah. so our, our stomach and digestive tract enzymes would essentially denature snake venom so you'd have to have quite a lot of it for it to get through and hurt you
1: that's interesting mm. so Yeah, so there's that little kind of side little bit of Lyra kind of bibbling around doing what she's doing.
0: She also, sorry, I'm going to go back to this.
1: It's all right. We have
0: this other thing about the way in which she concocts a story of how Azrael escaped the poisoning plot. I think it's really (laughs) clever and kind Mm. of shows that, you know, Lyra's espionage ability is really starting to sharpen up because essentially (laughs) she says that Azrael proposed a toast of friendship in which he swapped glasses with the person that had poisoned him to, to show their mutual respect, forcing the guy essentially to <laughs> either commit a terrible faux pas or poison himself. Is Lyra being clever, turning into a bit of a spy.
1: That's a very kind of typical trope in stories, I think. The whole you poison me, let's swap glasses kind of thing. So she's sort of drawing from that kind of...
0: You know what this means. What? I should read more stories.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've
0: only seen it in The Princess Bride
1: <laughs> It crops up in stuff Okay, It's a trope enough. So I guess, yeah So yeah, the, the search for While all of that's going on with Lyra and her tall tales Kind of in the background The search for her is intensifying a little bit mm. So the police are knocking on doors Searching houses And interrogating people
0: Yeah And it's also said that The issue of the fens is being raised in Parliament, and Mm. essentially it goes so high that they're considering uh, changing the laws around the fens to allow the government basically to go in and get Lyra out of there, Mm. which I thought was interesting because, A, it shows how high up the kind of gobbler plot goes, if you like, how big the ablation boards reaches, but also, how did they know she's in the fens? Is there a spy amidst them?
1: That is a good question. I also thought it demonstrated with some of the kind of talk about what the police are up to, the fact that they're probably not kind of bound by the same kind of rules or stuff as they are in our world.
0: Yeah, the the, the police are basically just raiding any old place, aren't they? Mm. Just smashing away, doing whatever the hell they want to do.
1: And while all of that's going on with the police and things, Lyra's also questioning Mark Costa about her birth story and in a typical Lyra fashion, is kind of just drawn to the drama mm. of what happened.
0: Yeah, and and she keeps getting us to repeat it to the point where Lyra thinks she can remember it all and starts inventing bits of the memory <laughs> for herself. Yeah, like, she's like, oh like,
1: yeah, I can totally remember when this bit happened. It's yeah. like, no, you were actually a baby.
0: She remembers like what people wore, what yeah. clothes were in the cupboard that she was hidden in mm. during the fight between yeah. Azrael and Mr. Coulter.
1: I did think that that story showed us something about lord asriel's character though because it's described that he shoots uh mr Coulter in the head and then afterwards he's like act as if like nothing has happened basically he's just really calm i really chill and i'm like uh, that doesn't bode well does it
0: i sort of imagine asriel being like uh i don't know the things i don't know much about ernest hemingway but i want to say he he reminds me of ernest hemingway because, with actually no knowledge at all yeah, of what because i've just seen some pictures of ernest Hemingway holding shotguns and looking like a badass and i just like the idea that this sort of gentleman from days of yore this sort of writer and scholar loped around the world with shotguns <laughs> and didn't give a fuck and like that's <laughs> how i imagine asriel being <laughs> asriel as ernest Hemingway, as lord asriel
1: brilliant um and Lyra also spends some time learning how to read the Alethiometer.
0: Moving swiftly on from Ernest Hemingway, she does.
1: Yeah, I'm just so disgusted by your Ernest Hemingway, Lord Asriel comparison that I've decided to move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, so she's kind of spending some time learning to read the Alethiometer, getting used to how it feels when she uses it, state of mind. Yeah. She needs to be in to use it, that sort of thing.
0: And that that gets to be important near the end of Mm. this chapter and next as well. Yeah. Because then the Egyptians hold their second rope in, right? Yeah, and I cannot
1: interrupt you this time and we can actually talk about it, sorry.
0: (laughs) But if I edited it right, you never interrupted me. (gasps) (gasps) Time paradox. So... um, (laughs) Yeah, John Farhol's the second rope in the second big meeting of the Egyptians and all the families sort of pledge their gold and their people. And it turns out that he's raised an army of like 170 people to go on this mission to the north to get the kids back from the gobblers. And at this point, the issue of turning Lyra over to the authorities gets raised again.
1: By that one dude who's a bit of a douchebag.
0: That, that one guy who's probably the one that's told the police that Lyra's in the fence. <laughs> yeah. Ass. And John Farr basically reminds the Egyptians of all the things that Lord Azrael, Lyra's father, has done for them and why they owe a sort of debt of protection to her.
1: Yeah, I've actually written down a list of all the things that he did. Well, that's um, oh, He saved a Egyptian man's life. He allowed the Egyptian boats free passage on the canals for his property. He defeated a bill in Parliament that would have negatively affected the Egyptians. And he helped save lives during floods.
0: He helped save two lives during floods, I think. Yes. Mm. So you get this sort of idea that Azrael's actually quite heroic in a way and yeah. a good person. Because the, the-,
1: the Egyptians are quite a marginalised group. So mm. helping them out could be could negatively affect his I guess his image or his mm. social standing, but he doesn't really seem to care about that and no. seems to have Take an active part in helping them. Yeah,
0: I think one thing that's not clear from the book is: did he do all this for the Egyptians after Oster was sort of nursing Lyra, Mm. or before? We never we never get to find out. No. Did he have?
1: Like, is that like an important factor in it? Did he help them out because of that link, or? Was it something he would have done anyway?
0: Yeah. That being said, he probably didn't need to help them out because, I mean, it wasn't very long that she was with the Egyptians, and then he sent Mm. her to Jordan. So, I mean, I I think that we could still say that he's a a decent person for helping the Egyptians
1: Or has done decent things. Yeah. I'm not letting him off the hook. You're you're
0: not. I know. I I appreciate (laughs) that.
1: Uh, Uh, I think they also get questioned um, by different person whether they're going to kind of rescue lord asriel because they know that obviously he's up in the north people have heard things and they're like well you know you're gonna rescue the children and him but john far kind of says that that their main goal is to rescue the children and that whilst they might gather knowledge about him
0: they won't that's not their their main
1: aim but i'm like Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like something tells me that this wouldn't have come up if it wasn't important. Yeah. So um, that's kind of a bit remains missing, but that's not their their main goal. He's stating that isn't their main goal to no. do.
0: They they also bring up the question of what he's going to do to the gobblers, essentially, um, hmm. because some of the Egyptians it would seem would like blood.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's something that kind of would happen today in any community. You know, when you get something that's really bad happened especially to children you know people want revenge they want kind of justice in they see it in in that sort of sense but John Farr once again shows that he is actually awesome and amazing and just so much better than Lord Asriel because he kind of reiterates that rescue is the main aim of their mission and that he sort of says he hasn't gone soft and if he gets the chance to punish them he will but he's not going to kind of put the children in jeopardy just so he can... Yeah. Kind
0: of And he he talks a lot about his weapon, a hammer. Yeah. And 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 how he defeated a a Tartar was it champion. I have this in my notes. Yeah, he he slayed a Tartar champion with it and stuff. So I was kinda right last week when I said that, you know, traveller kings are just basically massive hard men. It sounds like John Farr is as well.
1: But he's also really lovely and nice. Yeah, but there's
0: nothing to say that traveller kings aren't.
1: Well, no, that's that's very true. But also Um, hard men. Yeah. (laughs) And I I reckon John like young John Farr would have been a hottie. I'm just gonna put that out there and say that.
0: Oh, you you fancy a bit of young John Farr.
1: <laughs> I just feel like he sounds like he would be both nice and quite strong. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Um so he he sort of rallied the Egyptians, rallied his army, stated the aims and purposes of their mission north. And Lyra still eager to go north, is really upset by the fact that she's essentially shut out from this point onwards. Yeah. Not not part of any further planning.
1: That's been with us from quite early on, this thing that Lyra is just desperate to travel north. And now she's kind of got a chance and Mm. she's been told no. We don't
0: need you. I think she was expecting that she would be viewed as mission critical and would definitely be going with them. And it's somewhat of a surprise to this 12-ish year old girl (laughs) that she's not being taken on a essentially paramilitary operation.
1: (laughs) But she is kind of like that in general because because she is young. She has got that thing where she thinks she is the centre of the universe. Mm. Possibly a little bit more so than most children. And also she's got kind of reason to believe that because people are searching for her.
0: Yeah, yeah, she mean, kind
1: of is realizing that she is more important. Yeah, but yeah, I think she thought maybe that would
0: that would be her her key to yeah. go north, etc. Mm. And that's more or less the chapter closes on that. Is just yeah. Lyra. Sorry, you're not coming. You're not even allowed to talk to us about this anymore. You're barred. You just you're barred. Just go back, sit on the boat, do some washing up, yeah. draw a picture of a kitten, do little girl <laughs> things, you know.
1: Why did kitten? Why was that the first thing that came to mind?
0: I don't know, I could just imagine that being something that someone would send like a little girl to do when she was, you know, overstepping the limits of womanhood.
1: Kittens, that's what often happened to me. They were like, Sarah.
0: Sarah, put down that Kalashnikov and go and draw
1: kittens. Kittens. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, it's just that kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> they are quite patronising, almost like they they sort of just restrain laughter and shoo her away, don't they? They do. But then again, is that patronising? She is a twelve year old. I don't know where I stand on this. I suppose because I've read the book and I know that she turns out to be quite handy. Uh, yeah, I feel that it's patronising. Quite quite
1: yeah. Hmm. So yeah, on to chapter nine, which is called the spies.
0: Yeah, I like this chapter, but it's quite sad.
1: Yeah, lots of interesting things to think about in this chapter, I think.
0: Yeah, beginning Uh, with Lyra trying to think of a way to get on the North (laughs) mission.
1: (laughs) Unsurprisingly. No, not um, surprising at all. She's kind of like watching the preparations and kind of getting a bit sad about that and then also sort of attaches herself onto Fardakarim.
0: Under the pretense that she can help him interpret messages being sent to him by his spies and he just sort of feels a bit sorry for her and humours her and says, yes, Mm. yes, please help
1: yeah in a in a another addition to Demon watch, which is what I'm gonna call every time we talk about demons because mm. it is one of the most exciting parts about this yeah. book you
0: are you are now the Chris Packham of demons
1: <laughs> yeah in another addition to Demon watch we have Lyra really lovingly describing Father Coram's cat demon. which Sofanax. is Sophanax, which is also a cool name uh, which is something I've got down here as well. all the demons have quite fancy names
0: they're all Greek
1: yeah, pretty cool mm. but they apart from. We did have Tony bratta yeah. Rata, which I'm guessing maybe...
0: His his parents were poor, so they wouldn't know Greek. You're <laughs> <Something laughs> saying everyone like else that. knows Greek. Yeah, everyone knows Greek, but...
1: Yeah, there's clearly sort of a class or something thing going on there. But yeah, Lyra really lovingly describes this cat demon, and she also says that his cat demon is very different to when Pan turns into a cat. Yeah. So... It's- it's... Yeah, so even when Pam turns into a cat, he looks kind of a little bit more wild and a little more...
0: A little bit of a wiry little feral.
1: Yeah, whereas Fardacorums is like this lovely autumn colour and it's really beautiful and kind of soft looking. Yeah. And she describes a lot about how she feels she wishes she could touch it. Mm-hmm. But, but she can't. Yeah, we find out she can't because it's a taboo to touch another person's demon.
0: Yeah. Like the way the way it's described as it being this intuitive thing, you just don't do it, it's appalling. Why would you do it? It's, it's, it sounds almost like Lyra's universe's version of sexual assault. Let's mm-hmm. be honest, it's like you don't touch another person's demon.
1: Yeah, it's not something they're necessarily told. It's like an innate feeling that it is wrong to do that. Mm. Yeah, and she's kind of wouldn't even consider it, even though she says oh, it would look soft. She wouldn't actually sort of do that. Dare
0: to touch or even ask. Mm. Another thing about Sophanax is is that the only other demon whose name we know so far besides pantalaimon?
1: We know Lord Azrael's demon's name as well. Do we? Stelmaria or Stelmaria.
0: Ah, okay, I'd forgotten that.
1: But yeah, I think those are the only three that we know so far.
0: Sophanax, pantalaimon. I know what pantalaiman means.
1: What does pantalaiman mean?
0: It means empathy for all. No, compassion for all, sorry, in Greek.
1: We haven't. I don't feel like we've seen a lot of that from Pan yet, but maybe that's something that comes out later.
0: Maybe Mr. Pullman didn't expect anyone to read anything into the name. I bet you don't know what Estel Maria means.
1: It doesn't have a direct meaning. Oh. It has like a a potential kind of etymological link.
0: It I'm, does. I'm glad
1: I said etymological right then. I was really worried about that. Go me. Yeah,
0: that's the sort of word that worries me too. Ooh. I always want to say entomological.
1: Yeah. It's not the same thing nope. um yeah so to i think it's stella maria which is star of the sea in greek in, no i think that's italian
0: i sense a little google in both of our pasts
1: <laughs> <laughs> i do i just know these things off the top of my head
0: just the knowledge just yeah pops in there Yep, exactly i wish i were you <laughs> i genuinely do
1: Well, sometimes I wish I could, like, drive around in your body for a day, just to see what it was like. It'd be quite fun. You're looking at me so confused and dazed.
0: Is this getting weird? Yeah. Should we just swap bodies? Is that a thing? Can that be done? I mean, maybe in this world. The problem is, if I swapped bodies with you, it still wouldn't give me a brain into which wonderful knowledge just pops.
1: True. Which... True. That's what you wanted. I did, yeah. I just wanted to know what it was like to be a boy for a day. That's
0: it's, all. it's 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 all right, you know. Just it's wanted fun. to.
1: I wanted to pee outdoors without it being really difficult. Yeah. And faffy. That's what I wanted.
0: It's it's good. You 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 enjoy the privilege, you do.
1: Do you? Do you, you ever do. stand there and pee and think, yeah, this is what it's all about?
0: Oh, always when I'm peeing, I stand there and I think, this is life, man. This is living, peeing standing <laughs> up. Got mm. my. Got my PP in my hand and I'm peeing in the loo. (laughs) (laughs) This is this is pinnacle. This is peak. Peak humanity right Mm, here. This makes this makes it all worth it. That existential crisis (laughs) doesn't stand a chance against me when I'm having a piss.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So swiftly moving on Mm. from that revelation. (laughs) Please please do. uh, yeah, I'd got um, Father Corum's Demon, still in Demon Demon Corner.
0: Yeah. Oh, what oh. was the
1: other thing I called it? I can't remember what I called it.
0: Demon Watch.
1: Demon Watch, like Spring Watch.
0: Good Lord, is the thought of me peeing just erasing your it memory? Has,
1: it's just, yeah, completely knocked me for six. So in, in Demon Corner slash Demon Watch, we also have Father Corum's Demon being described as sleek, healthy and beautiful. Beautiful? Beautiful beautiful. Uh, Whereas he is ravaged and weak, but his mind is described as being sharp and clear in which case, does Sofanax resemble slash represent his His mentality?
0: That's a very interesting point. Because we don't, at this stage in the book, still actually don't know what a demon is. No. We know they're linked to humans, they die when their human dies, tons of stuff like that, but what the F is a demon? So maybe it does represent his psyche.
1: Mm. And I think the fact that Lyra's cat demon is different to, to the way that Sophonax looks, kind of maybe indicates that it does kind of physically look kind of how the person is, in a way. Because Lyra how is a bit kind is. of wild and kind of feral. But what, what, so what, what would
0: that mean, for example, for Coulter's golden monkey?
1: She's a cheeky monkey.
0: I think she's a bit more than cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, good grief.
1: I think, I don't know, because a golden monkey is quite unusual
0: Mm. And and it's described often as having like a cold look about it and stuff, so maybe...
1: That is interesting, because I can't think of like, when you think about different animals, you kind of can imagine different little personality traits belonging to those animals or whatever. But when you say like monkey, other than cheeky, I can't really think of anything.
0: Oh, I often think of monkeys and apes as well, particularly apes, as being quite violent. And aggressive, because actually Mm. in reality they are. They're they're not cheeky, they're vicious, a lot of them.
1: So that might be something then. It might be that kind of violence in her. yeah I mean, I think this might be the time to have the conversation, the very important conversation where we say, what would your demon be?
0: Well, you see, we've pondered this, haven't we? And you said that my demon would be a squirrel.
1: Yeah, because squirrels are like fast and kind of a little bit cheeky and a little bit curious and I can just imagine it being like zipping around like Is that <laughs> your
0: polite way of saying hyperactive.
1: Yes. Yeah. You are very hyperactive and you've got lots of ideas and, you know, going off all over the place at all times. So I,
0: I always forget where my nuts are.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 always, There's I... been
1: far too much talk about your genitals today, I feel. I'm sorry.
0: Would would you like to redress the balance and talk about yours?
1: No, I'm I'm good quite good, thanks. Well there yeah. we go then
0: in mine it is.
1: Yeah, a squirrel, something like that, or maybe an otter. But I couldn't say why an otter, I just feel like, maybe you just look like an otter.
0: Do I? I think I look like a bat. Would you like to see my impression of a bat? Oh God. It it is purely visual, dear listeners. So I'm
1: going to have to describe this impression to you once he does it. Uh, Are you
0: ready to see it?
1: Yeah. He's pulling... (laughs) That is actually... (laughs) Freakishly accurate. I,
0: I knew that you would have that reaction because everybody does.
1: It's really good. Anyway. I can't describe it other than being, imagine like a human that looks like a bat. <laughs> That's what it is.
0: But it's funny because I always say I look like a bat and people go, no, you don't. What are you talking about? And then I do the impression and i I'm like, oh my God, and burst out laughing.
1: But you don't look like a bat every day. You no. just look like one when you're doing an impression of one.
0: I just have the remarkable well, ability to did transform. did you figure out
1: that you could do that? <laughs>
0: So, <laughs> God, we're going to dig deep into my psyche. When I was at school, some girls in my class were discussing what animal all of the boys reminded them of. And when they came to me and the guy next to me, Trevor, they described Trevor. Trevor. Trevor, yeah. I won't give his surname away. Trevor was a nice guy, bit of a Jack the Lad. Quite greasy. That's how I'd describe Mm. him, unfortunately. Trevor, the greasy lad. Physically quite greasy.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, They described him as a stag. And I was like, if Trevor gets stag, I can't wait to find out what mine's going (laughs) to
1: be. I can see where this is going.
0: (laughs) And one of them said, I think you're a bat. And I went, oh, and they moved on to the next person who was whatever they were. At this point, I had stopped listening because I'd descended into a well of despair. How is Trevor a stag, greasy Trevor a stag and me a bat? Oh, my ego was shattered, let me tell you. Then I, mean, I went home and looked in the mirror and went, do I look like a bat? And then I pulled various faces to see if I could make myself look like a bat and discovered I could.
1: That is a beautiful story. out of pain story.
0: emerged a wonderful gift.
1: Yeah. Maybe that girl really liked bats. Maybe she was just like, bats are the most beautiful creatures, they are they are mammals that can fly, they are incredible, and that is what Chris reminds me of, that could have been it.
0: I mean, the way I dress it up is like that she stood in front of me and said it in this horribly aggressive manner, but honestly, it was more like she just couldn't think of anything and said mm. bat, it was like,
1: uh, bat. I love that Trevor got stag.
0: Trevor got stag, and I uh, to this day... Not even deer, well.
1: like specifically a stag, that's quite... Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll never know why Trevor got a stag. I'd imagine maybe one of them fancied him.
1: Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. But yeah, demons.
0: <laughs> so, yours
1: would... maybe a squirrel, maybe an otter, maybe a, I don't know. What would you think yours is?
0: I don't know. I mean, that's how this conversation started with us previously, as I didn't know, so I asked you what mine should be.
1: Mm. And what because, do you I think mean, mine should be?
0: I don't know. You said that yours should be rabbit, wild rabbit, which actually works quite well. Mm.
1: I said wild rabbit because going on the um, the assumption of what we talked about before, which was the, the, the animal kind of is a reflection of the person a little bit. I thought rabbit for me because I'm quite shy. That's basically it, because I'm quite shy.
0: Because you're quite shy.
1: Um, yeah, because I'm quite shy. I like having sex a lot. Actually, that works quite well. It does. <laughs> can i say that
0: you can you just did now we're talking about your genitals
1: Uh, in a really far off kind of manner but yeah um yeah rabbit for me or hummingbird because they are kind of frantic and nervy and i am quite also quite an well i said anxious i'm quite an anxiousy i didn't say anxious i'm all over the shop you said shy (laughs) i said shy shy so maybe this would be why i'm a hummingbird yeah i'm quite an anxious person and my thoughts tend to dart around a lot maybe a little bit like a hummingbird also i did take a couple of the online um what is your demon tests i don't think they're particularly accurate whatever that means i'm doing air quotes around accurate
0: yeah i don't know how you'd (laughs) make an accurate test to determine what someone's demon should be if i'm honest
1: i also think that like when I don't think. I was wondering, and you were the worst person to ask this of as well. Is there a link between what your demon would be and what your Patronus would be? For any Harry Potter fans out there, I wonder if this is something that's come up before. You're like, is your demon the same thing as your Patronus?
0: I mean we're we're crossing fictional universes here, so I think you can kind of meet your own rules up in that in that no, case. No, there
1: must be a single answer.
0: Okay. I think not. I think not because the Patronus is a sort of magical representation of, I want to say spirit animal, it's not really, but it's kind of your your fortitude, your defender, isn't it? Yes. Whereas the demon is something else that's a bit spoilery.
1: Considering you're not a massive Potterhead, that is quite a good answer. What I am going to do is I'm going to go and speak to my sister, who is a huge Harry Potter fan, and is also a Dark Materials fan. Not as much of a Dark Materials fan as she's Potter, because she's just read and listened to that countless times. I'm going to get her opinion on it, because I feel like she's got a good a good take on it. Yeah. And yeah. I'll, I'll come and we'll, report back.
0: We'll wait with bated breath for you to tell us next for episode. For
1: Caroline's opinion whether, on this.
0: <laughs> whether you got anything sensible out of that discussion, or whether it just turned into one of those massive fan debates that never really reached a conclusion. It
1: probably will. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, back to the actual book. Not that massive um, <laughs> detour. Yeah. So when Lyra's not checking out Father Coram's demon, um, <laughs> <laughs> she's learning to read the Alethia meter with the help of Father Coram.
0: Yeah. Even though he doesn't fully understand how to read it, he just sort of seems to be able to give her a little guidance on it.
1: Well, I think he's read some of the, the literature on it. I think we, we hear about a book which has all the meanings of the symbols in it. And I think he's seen this book at some point. So he kind of gives her little nudges in the right direction. Yeah. Towards some of the meaning of some of the symbols.
0: Yeah, and Lyra makes two predictions that kind of become important. Um, One is to do with Mrs. Coulter. She's been trying to figure out what Coulter's up to and the alethiometer returns a symbol. She doesn't even recognise the depiction. A large-eyed lizard perched on a twig. And it's basically a chameleon, but she doesn't recognise that. And the other prediction is to do with Father Coram's spies and she predicts death or danger um to the spies.
1: And we get a kind of an outcome to the Alethiometer readings pretty fast.
0: Pretty swiftly.
1: <laughs> yes. Almost instantly word comes that one of the spies has returned and that he's injured so they go and have a little chat with him and we also get another another demon watch moment it's just full of so many demon watch moments (laughs) we get a get the man's demon talking for him yeah so he's so injured that that she actually has to speak on his behalf and it is mentioned that it's quite unusual for that to happen
0: Yes. Which is something
1: we have kind of talked about, whether that was a thing or not. But yeah, it kind of confirms the fact that people don't really talk to other people's demons. Yeah,
0: but that it is possible. Yeah, yeah, it's possible,
1: but not, doesn't happen often.
0: Yeah, and she, along with the man when he can, sort of relays the story of what happened to him and the other spies while they were on their mission in London, spying for Gorham.
1: Yeah, kind of a lot of them just going around trying to find gobblers, they catch one. Yeah. They get sent to find Lord Boreal, who is someone that Lyra spoke to at the party, at Mrs. Coulter's yes, party.
0: who seemed to be quite a high-ranking gobbler. Mm-hmm.
1: And they also break into the Ministry of Theology.
0: Yeah, which is essentially, I think the gobbler they captured told them something like, that's where Boreal and the orders to the gobblers or the ablation board come from. Yeah. So it kind of confirms that it goes right to the top of government.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, kind of Lyra realises at that point that the Alethiometer knew what happened. Yes. And that's kind of one of the first real moments when you realise that it, that it not only tells the truth, but she also has the power to read it.
0: Yeah, because it, it predicts this great danger or death. And what he tells them is when they went to the ministry, he got shot with an arrow, which is still in him. Yeah. But one of the other spies was killed and one was captured. So at that point, I think kind of the most important thing for the plot is that Corum sits up and takes notice and realizes that Lyra might be quite handy after all, even though previously she'd been sort yeah. of dismissed.
1: And I think Lyra starts to realize as well that this is quite serious. I think it was all a bit fun and games at mm. first, but now she's kind of predicted this man dying and the and you know the death of some of the other spies. It all kind of hits home to her a little bit more, and it also causes her and Pan to have a bit of a chat about yes. how they think the alethiometer might work yeah
0: because i mean essentially she starts to wrestle with the responsibility of it hmm. like it's this fact that she can read it and divine truth perhaps even future from it yeah scares her more than just about anything else seems to have done so far
1: yeah she's not um, easily scared but this definitely this
0: bothers her And she speculates that maybe it's a spirit that drives the alethiometer and sort of just wants to throw it away
1: yeah, which again is interesting because we come back to that idea that spirits are real in the world that they yeah. live in because and they have a little chat then about spirits and the fact that Pan can see spirits. Yes. So And they ooh. even
0: argue over whether Pan can see all spirits or, <laughs> or just petty
1: ghasts and things yeah. all like that. That was it. Night ghasts they talk about because Lyra says about, well, you, saw, you know, I saw the ones at the college and things. So you get this idea that in their world, spirits are a real thing.
0: Sounds like it.
1: Yeah, unless that's just Lyra's point of view, Yeah, and it's not, but or, it seems like...
0: Spirit is somehow a colloquial term for some technology or other, but mm. I doubt it. It sounds very much like spirit means something along mm. the lines of spirit.
1: And then Pan says something very smart indeed, and he suggests that the alethiometer is controlled by elementary particles.
0: He does. Well done, Pan. Very smart. And he relates it to an object they saw in one of the other colleges of Oxford, it's yeah. described as this device, which sort of sits under a glass dome, and when it's exposed to light, it spins. It sort of sounds like a little windmill, very small windmill. Mm. And this is presented to them by some sort of preacher. It almost sounds like some sort of.
1: He's called an intercessor.
0: Yeah, what's in, what does intercessor mean? O no words one.
1: Oh no, not again! <laughs> I really need to Google. at like any time a a vaguely different word comes up, I'm like, because the thing is with this book is that I'm not always sure whether the words that appear are actually kind of new words or whether they're just words that are used in our world but just not very often.
0: Well, I'm actually going to Google it now, but I know that it's a real word because I can't remember what it's from, whether it's a film or real life or what, but I've definitely come across a ship named The Intercessor before. So I think it is a real word. I don't
1: mean... I know it's a real word. What I mean is... I guess I don't mean real word. I mean used for the purpose that it is in this uh, I get you. so is that a word that is usually used in reference to kind of religious figures
0: well as I think it always transpires with this book he uses it in the correct context mm-hmm. it is a person who intervenes on behalf of another especially by prayer
1: Ooh. Oh,
0: synonymous with moderator intermediator so on so yeah he's he's sort of someone who prays on the behalf of others. But he introduces them to this little windmill and Mm. when they expose it to the light, it spins and he says something along the lines of, see the way the dark side of the sail runs from the light and the light side is attracted to it and it assigns great religious meaning to it.
1: Yeah, because the object is described as holy and Lyra notices, or remembers rather, that the item is covered in like black velvet cloth when it's... Um, stored, mm. much like the alethiometer is. Yeah. So it's that combination of science and religion that seems to happen really closely in their world. Yeah,
0: the, the theological sciences yeah. is what it's referred to in the opening chapters. Mm. There is a very strange interplay between the two. Yeah. Demonstrated quite elegantly here because what they're describing to me sounds like what is essentially a solar sail, which in our world could be considered fairly high-tech, to be honest, I mean... Mm. They, they've been speculated as a means by which interstellar space travel could be achieved by humans. Mm. Essentially what they are is a sail that catches solar emissions mm. and just like a ship's sail pushes your spacecraft along using them. But, mm. but Steve Hawking, probably in the last year or two of his life, along with another physicist whose name I've forgotten, um, hypothesized a really little space probe about the size of a coin that through the use of solar sails could reach our nearest solar system neighbor within a human lifetime which is a really big deal because that's like four and a bit light years away alpha centauri Mm. so solar sails according to professor Hawking, could actually help us achieve interstellar travel
1: Mm. so quite
0: quite a high concept piece of technology to have under a cloth in a church
1: and they're using it also to teach moral lessons really yeah I also thought sort of going back to that name intercessor, it is kind of like being the intermediary between people and God. Mm. Like they themselves can't interact with God. So he has to do it on their behalf. And I think there is something quite sinister about that.
0: I think I take quite a, A, sceptical and a B, I don't know what word I'm reaching for here. Uh, I, I sort of judge them harshly. Hmm anyone that says they speak on behalf of god yeah because it's quite a convenient position to find yourself in isn't it being the word the voice of god is a bit it yeah is, you know, <laughs> if you're listening mr pope
1: i'm sure he is i'm sure he's yeah. a big fan <laughs>
0: pope sat there in the uh in the room of penises in the vatican just
1: do you want to clarify what you mean by that the room
0: of penises <laughs> yeah the room where the vatican keeps all of the penises that the catholic church broke off of Classical period statues because they found them obscene.
1: Did they keep them?
0: Allegedly, they kept them in in a room in the Vatican, in a hall in the Vatican. Yeah, allegedly. Wow. I don't know if anyone outside of high-ranking Catholics has ever seen this, or <laughs> or would be allowed to see it should it exist. But so the rumor goes. So that's what the Pope's doing right now. He's sat in a room full of marble cocks, listening to a couple of queer bows talking about a book that has been described <laughs> as atheism for kids.
1: <laughs> we can only hope. Yeah, <laughs> Atheism for kids, is that how some people have...
0: That's what it's been called, yeah. It's been referred to as, and Paulman apparently embraces that description. I, I bet he does. Yeah, who wouldn't? <laughs>
1: it's beautiful. <laughs> so because of all of this, sort of going back to Lyra kind of realising the it works, uh, John Farr decides that Lyra will go with them. Um, on the trip because she couldn't read the alethiometer. Now I don't know about you, but I felt like that was a bit of a weak reason to take her along.
0: I mean, I suppose if you're going on a potentially hazardous mission, it would be cool to have someone that could potentially tell the future or but see things. she has things only she done it once. True, true. It is a bit weak of a reason to take a twelve-year-old girl on a potential suicide mission. But I guess you know, telling telling the future or the truth or whatever we want to call it, once. It's more, once more than anyone else appears to have done. So It's also
1: really good for the plot.
0: Well, yes. There uh, is. That is the other point.
1: Yeah. Um, and so, with that, they begin their journey up north.
0: Well, first of all, they have to get to the seaside, don't they? Because the Egyptians have chartered a ship to get north. But I guess mm. that really is the beginning of the journey. Yeah, it's kind things. of,
1: yeah. And Lyra even begins to wish that she was back at, jordan college she kind does. of during this point yeah during this journey which is shows that she does kind of come back to stuff every so often mm. she does have this sense of like although she likes the adventure and the drama and stuff that actually she kind of does miss that simple life that she had at yeah. jordan college
0: th- the life of a child is what she had mm. quite quite a nice life in many respects mm. for a child because essentially like on all the way to the coast to this ship they've charged she has to be kept hidden away on board yeah. the, the barges so that should anyone yeah. be looking for her, they don't get her and i guess that combined with the weight of responsibility of knowing oh, I, I i've become some sort of fortune teller for yeah. for this dangerous and also mission.
1: tony costa's telling her about the rumors that they hear topside, like everything in the pubs and the inns, oh, yes. they hear waterside. You know, she's getting these tales back of the facts that people are looking for her. Yeah. You know, that's going to be scary. And-, and and
0: she's the only child to ever escape the gobblers. And mm-hmm. there, there are even rumours that her and Pan are in fact not children, but some evil forces that have been sent some essentially spirits. by Satan. <laughs> Uh, to wreak havoc amongst the mortal world, yeah, which sounds an awful lot to me like it might be kind of ablation board church propaganda.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, yeah. it's a bit, it's a bit like how the whole Illuminati thing started. <laughs> you know, the Illuminati were a Bavarian group who campaigned for the separation of church and state. Oh, really? Fast forward to now, and somehow someone has implanted the idea that the Illuminati were satanic, evil shadowy figures that control and (laughs) wish to disassemble human society so Mm. it's like the
1: illuminati have been illuminated
0: yeah illuminati illumination confirmed (laughs) like it is it is it is interesting isn't it to consider that if you decide you don't like the church suddenly somehow everyone knows you're satan Mm. and that seems to be what's happened to lyra she's a threat to the theological order yes exactly and so suddenly rumours abound that she is with the work of the devil, essentially.
1: Yeah. And so while she's got all this spare time in her hand, she kind of becomes increasingly absorbed by reading the Alethiometer and honing those skills and she finds it easier and easier to get into this. She describes it as kind of it's almost like meditation, isn't it? Mm, this really sort of
0: almost trance like.
1: Yeah, state of mind where she can drop down the levels to find the right meanings and
0: Yeah. And and she's sort of starting to more and more feel the meanings without being told them. Mm. She's, she's getting quite clever at the old uh, truth meter.
1: I thought it was good at this point, Phil. I think we've got to give some props to Phil for his like descriptions because I always do love his descriptions of places. Um, he describes the estuary that they're, they're travelling through and it sounds thoroughly shit. And it's the only way I could think to describe it. Um, it sounds like dirty
0: air filled with fumes from
1: yeah fish smelling whatever um they do also mention coal spirit yes which i wondered what you if you had an opinion on what you thought coal spirit was
0: Uh, do you know i actually meant to look coal spirit up because it's a term i've heard before but then i've but i assume that it's just some form of fossil fuel i Mm. my initial thought was it's just oil right yeah that's what i
1: thought Uh, it's the guess what it means in this world game But I kind of enjoy that because sometimes you can read something for a bit in this book and you'll be like, you'll just accept it as being a new thing and then you're like, hang on a minute, that means this other thing.
0: But I mean, I I guess it it's a dirty fossil fuel of yeah. some sort. Maybe someone can enlighten us. Mm. But I can't, I'm sorry.
1: And then Lyra is allowed upon deck.
0: Yes, she is.
1: John no, not John Farr. Far decorum. I just want to mix their names up. I think it's just because they've got Fs in it. But, like, I constantly want to say the other one. Yeah, well, that's Mm
0: -hmm. why, I don't know if you've noticed, I've stopped calling him Fardacorum and I just call him (laughs) Coram. I refer to all the characters by their surnames and I find it a lot easier to keep them separate in my head.
1: Okay, I might try that tactic in Mm. future. Um, Yeah, Lyra's allowed up on deck because she's getting a bit kind of restless and a bit overworked from, like, figuring out the Alethiometer. Coram
0: thinks, what's the harm in it? yeah. And Pam wants quiet. to stretch
1: his wings a bit because it seems like when she's feeling cooped up, it helps her when Pan is able to transform into something like a bird or something that can, you know. It
0: can just have a bit of a scamper and a
1: Yeah, and yeah. it makes her feel more.
0: We, it it, it does make sense because mm. we've already been treated to descriptions of humans feeling what their demons are experiencing mm. and stuff. So off they go upstairs with the permission of Corum. And immediately, Bad idea. Lyra's prediction about Mrs. Coulter becomes less opaque. She suddenly discovers it's meaning. Yeah. Because Pan gets attacked by fascinatingly described creatures, yes. things.
1: That initially appear to be beetles, yeah. kind of flying beetles, which then um, decorum fortunately, does know something about. Again, we get another word, African is Afric.
0: Yeah, afric. I'm
1: That's just going to put African out every thing. single word that is different. We're going to try to point out just because it's like... Ooh,
0: yeah, it's a little, Ooh, here's another little. little divergence from our world.
1: Yeah. Because
0: yeah. they catch one of these bugs, don't they? Pan mm. and one of the Egyptian's demons managed to bring one down on the deck yeah. of the boat.
1: Yeah, um, and he describes it as being clockwork on mm. the inside, so it's not actually a real beetle, it's clockwork, but with a bad spirit pinned to the spring.
0: Yeah, and essentially, <laughs> if you if you break the beetle, the spirit will fly out and kill the first person it sees because it's so mad. Mm. And if you don't break the beetle, the beetle will just carry on doing what it does forever.
1: Yeah. This kind of raises the question to me, like, is that how it actually works? Are spells a thing? Because it talks about basically putting a spell on the spirit and stuff.
0: Yeah. I mean, essentially... It's it's interesting kind of just to go back a little from that, looking at how it works, that it wasn't chosen that just a spirit possesses the beetle and controls it. It's actually a robot, essentially. It's an automata. And all Mm. the spirit is there for is the more it struggles to escape, the more it winds the spring up that drives this thing. So the... the, the, the,
1: It's a winding mechanism. The
0: the spirit is just enslaved, essentially, within Mm. this automaton. Yeah. And... We don't know if that's really how it works or if it's some technology that Corum doesn't understand or what.
1: But it's cool.
0: It is cool. And they so they sort of just lock it in a little tin to take it with them because like, they don't have many options. They can't really let it go.
1: No, they say that even if they were to sink it, Like, if they were to put it in the tin and try and, like, sink it with lead underwater, eventually the metal would rust and it would escape and it would immediately try and find Lyra wherever she was in the world, which is quite an effective weapon, really.
0: Yeah, this thing sounds quite horrifying. Like, you don't want one of these on your case. No. But essentially it's uh, speculated that Mrs. Coulter has sent these things after Lyra Mm -hmm. and because she's explored the whole world, not just the North, she must have bought them back from Africa.
1: Africa because there was a little elephant her. on one of the symbols. So I think that was it. What, yeah. what did the chameleon turn out to be? I can't...
0: I would assume that the chameleon is something in disguise. So maybe that's supposed to be looking for something that's disguised or hidden. Looking for Lyra.
1: Beatles in disguise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Afric things. Beetles in disguise. There you go. <laughs> that's buffy. Theme tune complete.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of theorised that Mrs. Coulter sent the Beatles to spy on the Egyptians to find Lyra. Now... One of them is free yeah. also to find, to tell Mrs. Coulter because yeah. not only did they trap one, one escaped, which means she's going to know where Lyra is. Yeah. Which is not good.
0: Nevertheless, though, they do manage to make it to the ship that they were heading for without mm-hmm. further incident.
1: To Colby. To Colby, yeah. I thought this was quite interesting, how she described the um, the boat as... <laughs> I don't know if I can even say this. A high... Fox. No, folksel. can't do it? Folks, is that how you say it's it? Folks, and a stout Derek. What is that?
0: Oh, uh, the stout Derek is essentially a sort of crane tower type thing. Okay, because all
1: I think is I, I don't think you've watched this, but um, there's the program The Good Place. I haven't. Yeah, there's a character called Derek. If you've watched it, you know what I mean. And it's Maximum Derek, there's a bit when he says Maximum Derek. And it just makes me think of that stout Derek. Yeah. Um. So those are actually real words. I thought they might be made up, but no.
0: I've just remembered what foc'sle means. I'm sorry. It's kind of a contraction of forecastle, which is the bit that sticks up at the front of the ship. Uh, forecastle. Yeah. yeah. Sorry.
1: How do you say it again? Folks. Folksal. Folksal. Yeah. Folksal. Mm. Yeah.
0: Cool. I should have been Egyptian.
1: I'm gonna wow people with my ship knowledge the next time I'm near a boat.
0: Yeah, look at that folkslam, that stout there. I'm just going to
1: have to make sure it's not you that I'm with. Yeah.
0: Sarah says, as she looks at a little tug which possesses neither of those features. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, all the ship pedants will leap on you in a second.
1: Yeah, and so with that, it's yeah. off north.
0: With that, and a, a brief bit of beration from John Farr for letting Lyra get spotted by the bugs.
1: Well, he doesn't really berate him, he just kind of like well, gives him a bit of a...
0: Strongly implied beration.
1: I like a bit of a look. And they decide that they need to keep the beetle with them. Yes. Which I think begs the question, will it turn out to be an issue later on? Yeah. Because I mean, they're keeping it.
0: Their problem is it's going to be an issue if they let it go. Yeah. It's whereas it only might be an issue if they keep it. So I guess yeah. it's the lesser of two evils. Yeah. An emerging theme in this book.
1: Mm. And yeah, the ship sets off for the north. And Lyra feels seasick. I like that bit. Yeah, she's like, oh, she blames it on Pan. She's like, oh, Pan wasn't feeling himself. So she goes, she doesn't have dinner and goes to lie down.
0: Pan's feeling quite ill. Poor creature. Poor little creature Creature. is the exact words. You think Lyra's Mm. seasick and either Pan is feeling it or she's just blaming it on him. Yeah. But then they're off, like you say, and that closes section one of the book, Oxford.
1: I can't believe we're that far through already.
0: I know. Now we usually do the spoiler part at this point, and I think we should still do a little bit of a spoiler part, but maybe first what are your thoughts about the beginning of the book so far?
1: I'm so I am so into this book again. <laughs> it has caught me again and Yeah, I'd forgotten how quickly everything progresses. I think because when I read it last, or when I read it initially, sorry, I was young. I always have it in my mind that everything takes longer to happen. But actually, we're already on the way up north.
0: Yeah, maybe that's an indication that the pacing's okay for a kid, but perhaps does feel a little briefer to an adult.
1: I don't mind it that much because no. I'm I'm not getting bored. I'm just like, I am, I'm just ready for everything to happen. We've said it several times so far. I'll say that we've only done three episodes. We've said it a few times that nothing goes to waste. Yeah. You know, it's all, everything that's there needs to be there. There's nothing that feels extra or needed. Yes. And I think that's got to be commended, really.
0: Yeah. I I agree. It is well paced. Every so often, as we've mentioned, there are some bits that feel like they've been glossed over slightly. But ultimately, I don't think the book really suffers for that. Mm. Um, and I think it does keep the pacing tight. And considering how long this series of books is, I don't think that's a bad thing because it is quite a long series of books. Even though it is quite, mm. concise, but is it though really? Sense. Because it's
1: only three books. I mean, I mean, this is not taking into consideration um the new book of dust yeah kind of trilogy just the
0: initial trilogy three books um i mean i i'd say that it's relatively long in the sense that i mean there's a there's a chapter in northern Lights slash golden compass which is over 300 pages just one chapter yeah so. but if
1: you're thinking about like a series like harry potter you think about how big some of those books were yeah. towards the end they were massive
0: that's because she fired her editor but I digress.
1: <laughs> Ooh.
0: She did. Released her from service, let's say. That's I believe a... it was at her. Ooh,
1: I never do that. <laughs>
0: no, no. Otherwise you end up with really overblown books. Mm. But it's it's true. There are longer series of books, but I don't think this is short by any means.
1: I feel like some other books could maybe take a bit of a leaf out of old phil's Phil's book book. (laughs) (laughs) um because it's still an amazing series and it still gets so much across and it's still full of meaning yeah but there's no extra waffle
0: exactly i think a big part of what helps it along is it's outstandingly imaginative
1: yeah it's Uh, got some real interesting ideas in there
0: yeah it has a couple a few really strong a couple of few a couple of few really strong fairly novel ideas Mm. uh novel including like we need to stop making book puns we do stop that now moratorium Mm. on book puns so yeah the the demons and so on and the kind of multiverse being linked to dust and the weird interplay between science and religion and things Mm. like it's just it's a really nice setting and set Mm. of devices essentially to to drive the book along and Most of that's already been revealed in the first part of the first book. So I always get the sense that he probably either planned these books meticulously before he started or he revisited them several times before Mm. they were released. Or he's just a flipping genius and he just winged it and this is what came out.
1: I don't think you could wing it and just...
0: I don't know. I'd like to imagine a mind that could, but I suspect this is the product of hard labour.
1: I imagine he's very good at fine-tuning and editing. Mm. Or he has got a very good editor, potentially.
0: Either or. Yeah. It worked.
1: But it feels like we've had so many reveals already, but there's so much left to go. Oh, God,
0: there is. Should we like, drift into spoiler land already?
1: Ooh, maybe. I'm not sure entirely what I'm going to say, but just in case, we'll say spoiler yes. alert. <laughs>
0: from from here on, there may be spoilers. Let's take yeah. the lid off that bottle and let the demon out. That. <laughs> so we're we're going into the second part now of Northern Lights slash Golden Compass.
1: Things are about to get real.
0: Yeah, we get introduced to a couple of new characters who I'm particularly fond of. One, Lee Scoresby, who's essentially a gunslinger. We won't talk too much about any of these characters' stories or anything, but
1: yeah,
0: they're yeah, coming I'm excited. up soon. So I think we're about to mention. Pants them. To
1: mm-hmm. Just Panserbjorn, Yeah, that.
0: She loves it so much she can't even say it.
1: Mm-hmm, I do. And The Witches, Serafina who I also Pekala. love. It's basically just just all the interesting stuff happening. I think that's what I love so much about it, is that every time I think something really exciting is coming up, I then remember something else exciting. And yeah. I'm like, ha. Ah.
0: <laughs> and I, I don't know if this is going to hold true or not, but I think I remember from reading the first time that the opening of this second part of the book, I think I found it a little bit slow going the first time I read it. I'm going to be honest. I don't know mm. if I'll feel that way this time or whether it's it's because essentially you've got this sense that everything's building up to something. She's set on this voyage, mm. but the build up continues a bit in the second part. We don't go too quickly into the action. Yeah. And I don't know if I'll feel that again as I read through it this time. Yeah. Or whether it'll just be the fact that I was very impatient the first time because <laughs> I didn't know what was coming or how long it was going to take to get here.
1: I think that's different. Sorry, as in I think that's the difference between reading something the first time and reading it something subsequent times mm. is that sometimes when you're reading something the first time and you're really into it you get hella impatient like you're just like I want the stuff to happen now yeah. whereas when you've read it before and you know what's going to happen and you know kind of how long it's going to take it's like you you kind of just relax into it and you're like mm. I know it's coming I'm just going to enjoy the ride and I feel like that's a bit more where I'm at at the moment I'm just like enjoying everything that's coming at mm. me
0: I, I think I'm because I know roughly what's coming, as I've mentioned before, I've forgotten a lot of things, <laughs> bits are hazy in my memory because yeah. it's been so long, but I still remember the main plot beats, etc. The main thing that's keeping me going now that I'm enjoying the most is just how well it's written. I don't think I appreciated that so much mm. the first time as I'm reading it for the first time and discovering this world, mm. but kind of knowing a bit of it already and being quite familiar with it. Like I've been able to just sort of sit back and smell the roses a bit more and, yeah. and just enjoy how it's written which is generally really really well I love you Phil adopt me please
1: (laughs) have me as your demon (laughs) oh yes (laughs) other than that I don't know spoiler wise whether there's anything specific that came up for me in this that I really wanted to kind of particularly pick up on
0: no I mean the thing is it puts a neat ribbon essentially around that whole opening part of the book because we know where Lyra is going and what she's planning to do Mm. But it's almost a cliffhanger because there's nothing that's starting now in terms of new characters coming in or new locations or settings or anything Mm. like that that becomes important in the second part. It's almost like you get a clean break. Lyra is with a select few people from the first part of the book. She's going somewhere with them and we're going into newness almost, just like she's going into this new place, the North.
1: Yeah. It's almost like the more information I get, the more I want as well. So they start talking a little bit about the alethiometer and how it works. And I'm like, yes, give me more. Give me more about dust. Tell me more about how like this universe works or the universes work.
0: On on that topic of how her universe works, I did look up a couple of the things we were unsure of from previous episodes tartars muscovy uh muscovy mm-hmm. like we thought is basically moscow yeah it was the name of the grand duchy of moscow so essentially mm. that's like pre-communism pre-bolshevik uprising that's what the area around moscow was called muscovy mm. and the tartars are turkic people who live in what in our world would be the former ussr so Ooh. basically people living in places like kazakhstan so essentially we've got the tartars kind of progressing north from the sound of it towards moscow as mm. we would call it, I think that ties in quite neatly with the thing we were speculating on last episode about the Ottoman Empire still existing because mm. essentially the Ottoman Empire, its heart was Turkey, more or less. Yeah, and they kind of encroached north into Europe through the Balkans and. Okay, so that's kind
1: of happening.
0: Yeah, yeah. During this, yeah, in their world, that's something that happened and to some extent continued all the way up until the se- uh, the first world war sorry mm. in our world so it's also sets in well with the idea that maybe this is late 1800s early 1900s equivalent mm. the time period in, for the most part aside from what could be called a few anachronisms like <laughs> solar sails and <laughs> do you have anything else you want to talk about
1: no, I think I always find like the spoiler bits quite difficult because it's hard not to go on to everything that happens in the rest of the books.
0: <laughs> it's it's hard not to just freak out and be like, and guess how it
1: ends. And this happens and then this happens and then this happens. Okay. I think I said that last time as well. Um, I think because there is that excitement there, it's hard not to, to sort of want to
0: just spew on about it all. Mm-hmm. I mean we've already mentioned Serafina Pacala mm. and the witches.
1: I'm excited for the witches.
0: Yeah, and I I think that that is a bit of a hint at the idea that magic and stuff is real in their world. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't really need to even describe the witches aside from the fact that they're referred to as witches to kind of know there must be something to magic.
1: And the spells, the mention of the spell earlier in the chapter and things. So, but it's how far it goes. And you never quite know in this world whether it's magic in the traditional sense or if it's science that is
0: beyond us or or described. Science called magic,
1: Mm. you know.
0: Yeah, there is quite a crossover between theology, science, potentially magic. It's almost confounding Mm. when you're trying to read it to understand what's going on. Yeah. I think that's a really. Good thing in a way, though, because it helps reinforce the difference between Lyra's universe and ours. Just
1: nodding. I remembered that when you're doing a podcast,
0: <laughs> you can't hear a nod. No, no
1: in podcast,
0: can. no one can hear your nod. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that and air quotes as well.
0: You always do it. I've never seen you once do an air quote since really? we have started doing this. I've
1: done one today already. I'm pretty sure like my hands just want to do it. They're like there. They just held up. They're poised, air ready. Quote. Mm-hmm. All the things. So before we just ramble on, because I feel like we're getting a bit of a ramble on, should we say goodbye until next time? When will we will be moving on to Bolvanger, which is the new,
0: the new section, section of, of
1: the book? book? Chapters, question mark, because they're starting to get longer, which means we might have to start doing them one at a time, but we will put kind of in the description which chapters we're doing. So you'll be able to see before you listen to the episode which chapters we're doing
0: yes absolutely but things are going to get exciting and we're probably going to have plenty of cool stuff to discuss yeah so that's something to look forward to hopefully (laughs) as always you can email us find us on facebook instagram or even subscribe star by looking at the links in our blurbs
1: we'll send us a postcard or send us a
0: postcard pigeon pigeon carry a pigeon
1: i'd be really impressed if someone sent me a carry pigeon I would. But I don't know how they'd know where we live. but If you manage to find out where we live.
0: What's the etiquette on receiving a carrier pigeon? Do you have to feed it? Do you That's return it? That's a good question. Because I, I, I think actually carrier pigeon, you own the carrier pigeon and you give it, it's a homing pigeon that you give to oh. the person that you would like to send you messages. And then they just tie the message to it and release it and it comes back to you. I so think. do
1: we need to buy a carrier pigeon? So we pigeon? need
0: to buy a carrier pigeon, a homing pigeon. Mm-hmm. We need to let it know that our homes are its home. Mm-hmm. then we need to send one Out. to anyone that might want to send us a carrier pigeon it's getting expensive it's an expensive form of communication
1: mm. what about owl
0: <laughs> oh we're back in the harry potter universe yeah I couldn't tell you how carrier owl works owl i know
1: with owl posts you normally like they normally have a little pouch where you can put a little money for the to give the person like to, to pay for the service and you'd probably give the owl a bit of food as well
0: so you have to pay the, you have to pay the person that sent you the message. Well, no, because owl. Uh,
1: it depends because sometimes the owl is, I could be getting this wrong. If you're a Harry Potter fan, I'm so sorry. You have to pay <laughs> if the owl is like just a service, like just a postman. So it doesn't belong to anyone, but the delivery service. Also, but then sometimes you just, people use their own owls, in which case I think you would just like give the owl a bit of food.
0: Right. Like a mouse.
1: Yeah. Like a mouse. But that would mean you'd have to have a supply of like frozen mice in your fridge just in case. Just
0: just some dead mice in case someone wants to send you a message. You know, magic's all very well, but there's a lot to be said for email.
1: Well, you would think that with like, if you had magic, would you want to send things by owl? They seem incredibly unreliable. (laughs) And this has become just a slagging off Harry Potter podcast now, which Which, is not what we intended. And I enjoy Harry Potter.
0: I quite like Harry Potter.
1: But, but there are some important issues that we need to discuss.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Owls, though, really.
1: Yeah. So if you want to send us one of those, you know, as long as it's going to be easy for us, basically. Maybe feed the owl before you send it out to us.
0: Yeah. Or or use the modern magic of the interwebs to email yes. us or social media as.
1: huh. To send us abuse about how we talk about Harry Potter.
0: Or please do subscribe to us on Subscribestar. It doesn't cost very much money and it will help me feed a hungry Sarah this Christmas. <laughs>
1: and i am often hungry
0: and she will need feeding by christmas (laughs) i have it on good authority they don't last that long without food (laughs) goodbye
1: goodbye